Hello, I'm Peter Van Dusen, and this is the Primetime Politics Podcast. On our program tonight, waiting on the writ drop. The countdown continues to the official launch of the federal election campaign. Our panel of parliamentary journalists is here to talk timing, tactics, and more. The National Chief of the Assembly of First Nations outlines his election priorities for the political parties. And the UK Parliament is suspended for five weeks as Prime Minister Boris Johnson tries to salvage his Brexit strategy. We'll get the latest from London. But we begin tonight with the countdown to the writ drop in this country. By law, the campaign must begin no later than next Sunday for the election on October 21st. And after lots of pre-campaign announcements by the Prime Minister and his ministers in the last few weeks, Justin Trudeau has been hunkered down in Ottawa in the past few days in private meetings. His political opponents are pretty much in campaign mode now. This weekend, the NDP leader held a campaign kickoff rally in Toronto, even as the party struggles to nominate candidates and is also starting the campaign $4.5 million in debt. The Conservative leader, Andrew Scheer, will officially launch his campaign on Wednesday with stops in Quebec and Ontario. He, too, has been out touring the country already. Same goes for the leader of the Green Party, Elizabeth May. The polls show that the Liberals and Conservatives are neck and neck, and when the campaign begins for real, you can expect the leaders to focus on three key battlegrounds. Here's CPAC's Andrew Thompson with a closer look at where the parties will spend most of their time and money after the writ drops. Ontario, Quebec and British Columbia. It's no surprise that these three provinces tend to determine who forms the government here in Ottawa. They account for about 75% of Canada's population and 70% of seats in the House of Commons. With 14 million people living in 121 ridings, Ontario is the biggest prize in any federal campaign, including the 905 belt of suburban seats that went solidly liberal in 2015 after helping Stephen Harper win a Conservative majority in 2011. Last year, Doug Ford and the Provincial Conservatives triumphed in most of those same 905 seats. But how will his government's slide in popularity affect Andrew Scheer's campaign as Ontario voters look to health care, the economy and the cost of living as their top issues? And then there's Quebec and its 78 seats. Liberals hope their polling lead can offset potential losses elsewhere in Canada. The Conservatives and Bloc Québécois also hope for an improved showing, while the NDP faces the prospect of a political meltdown in Quebec. Climate change will be a key factor here, along with the contentious bill on religious symbols passed by Francois Legault's provincial government. But Canada's west coast might have the last word on how the federal government looks after October 21st. British Columbia is ground zero in the pipeline debate. It's where Justin Trudeau will again have to defend Liberal support for the Trans Mountain Project in the face of local opposition and a fresh wave of court challenges. Three-way races could loom as the Conservatives and NDP also target BC seats. And don't forget about Elizabeth May and the Green Party, buoyed by improved poll numbers and its role supporting BC's provincial government. Finally, consider this as the campaign unfolds. 
In 2015, there were 78 ridings decided by 5% or less. Most of those ridings were in those key provinces of Ontario, Quebec and British Columbia. The Liberals won nearly half of those ridings, with the Conservatives taking 19 and the Bloc Québécois 6. The NDP won 17 of these close races, representing nearly 40% of the party's seats. So, lots to discuss as we wait for the writ drop. Let's bring in our panel of parliamentary journalists. Susan Delacourt is a columnist and parliamentary bureau chief for the Toronto Star. Joël Denis Bellavance is the parliamentary bureau chief for La Presse. And John Iveson is a columnist for the National Post and parliamentary bureau chief for Post Media. Uh, you know, let's, let's begin with the story everybody's kind of talking about and wondering about uh, around Parliament Hill and, and maybe in other parts of the country, to be fair. Uh, the timing of the writ drop. What are we hearing? And, and I guess in the context of what's the strategy behind the timing of a writ drop when you have a fixed election date? Sorry, I've been kind of out of it. Is there an election? <laughs> no, no, apparently, but not yet. <laughs> yeah, no, I know in my office and in the places I'm moving around, that's all we're talking about. Uh, I think, you know, it's one of those stories that will disappear as soon as it is launched, but I guess what everybody wants to know is what is Justin Trudeau waiting for? It's in his hands. The people inside say we don't want to destroy our strategic advantage in having the element of surprise. Right. It's not going to be a surprise much longer. Right. We know by Sunday they, do it by Sunday. they have right. to do it. But I think their idea is what do we gain by staying back and just letting the others, who seem to be launching their campaigns right. unofficially this week, as well. I, I also take it, I think it's less of a factor now, but I do think they were musing about going last weekend, but the storm Dorian hitting Nova Scotia, I think the Manitoba election is mm -hmm. part of it as well. So I think they're weighing up the costs of, of calling it on a day where they might get some backlash for calling it. Right. You know. what, are you, what are you hearing, Jolene? What do you think? Well, I heard uh, the date that the Prime Minister is looking at is this Thursday on September 11th, uh, September 12th, sorry. Uh, so there's no more strategic advantage now because, as you mentioned, the date of the election has been known for four years. <laughs> so, what? what? <laughs> <laughs> and so there's just some jiggling, juggling for the Prime Minister, whether we call it this day or next day or what date should be uh, sh should we launch this thing and how we plan our campaign accordingly and so uh, I'm told that the Prime Minister will not follow the convention and calling it on Sunday we usually it's a Sunday when mm -hmm. we uh, go to uh, the polls and when it, an election is officially called he will move a little bit earlier and I'm told that the earliest that it could be is this Thursday. Okay what what do you think John and, and what about the I mean a lot of people wonder why would an incumbent prime minister, a sitting prime minister, call it any earlier than he had to? If he thinks that, you know, I, I guess there are some reasons why there you may might. Be some I mean, Stephen Harper reasons. called a 78-day campaign, uh, right. I mean, thinking the, he would have an advantage, and that didn't work. The, um, I mean, the, it doesn't seem as if it's going to matter to the other parties. The Conservatives mm -hmm. are launching on Wednesday anyway. So, mm -hmm. so at this stage, it's, it's kind of academic. Um, there may be a, a consideration about the... McLean's debate, which is on uh, Thursday, Thursday evening, which the prime minister is not attending. Which he's not attending, but he, but by calling the election that day, he might deflect attention away from the other leaders. I mean, I think giving the minimum amount of publicity to the other leaders is is largely what it's all about. Why they've they've held off for so long? Why he's not taking part in these debates? I mean, this is a kind of classic front runner strategy. Uh, it's not entirely clear he's the front runner but I would think if you're putting money on it at the moment you would think he was the favorite 
uh, given the concentration of the Conservative vote in, on the prairies, right. in which case, you know, their, their biggest worry is that he comes out and makes a gaffe and explodes their, their prospects. So that's why you have a short campaign and don't take part in a lot of debates. Let's, let's stay with the debate question. What, what, what do you think of the debate strategy? The Prime Minister Susan is saying that I'll do the two consortium debates and that's why we had the consortium debates because we didn't want <coughs> leaders cherry-picking which ones they go to. And then he cherry-picks that he's going to go to the TVA debate but not the McLean's debate, not the Monk debate. Uh, what do you make of that? Yeah, I should probably declare somewhat, I don't think it's really a conflict, but my media organization is one of the hosts right. of the official debate. Um, so I, I do think that uh, I, the initial hope from the government had been that all these people who wanted to, to take part or host a debate would actually bid for it and, um, mm. and have their own. And so... I personally would like more debates. I thought the last election, but there was lots more time for debate mm -hmm. in the last election. You know, there was 78 days, as John said. So the more debates, the better for me. Um, I think it would have been a good idea for Trudeau to do the Monk debate. He did quite well in it last time. In fact, I remember talking to people who said, I think he won the debate at the Monk debate. But um, for whatever reason, probably for what John is saying, He's decided fewer the better and don't undermine my um, the the debate commission I set up. Right, uh, but but but, he, but has he undermined the commission by taking part in the TVA de debate and saying no to others? I mean, there's a there's a reason why he wants to do the TVA debate, right? Yes. A massive audience in the province of Quebec where he needs more votes. And also, it's the first one that will be uh, taking place. The TVA debate will take place before the other organized by the commission. It's the only major network not in yeah, the consortium. Exactly. Too, yeah. right? Exactly. Yeah. So, so they're sort of. A, um, um, giving way to what the TVA <laughs> uh, TV station is trying to achieve, which is get outside the commission's debate and organize one in itself so that they get good ratings out of it, but um, because the uh, TVA debate has had some success in the past. But I expect that it will be a backlash for one reason, not because the Prime Minister will take part in two French debates but only one in English, and I expect uh, the, the rest of Canada not to be very happy. I think he would have avoided that situation if he had accepted one more in, in debate in English, so that you've got two in French and two in English, so nobody can complain about uh, linguistic inequality. And then you've got that right now. And more so because Elizabeth May, which is, you know, a, a, a factor in this election, has not been invited by TVA to take part in the debate. So the TVA debate will uh, put at play J Justin Trudeau, uh, François Blanchet, the Bloc Québécois leader, um, Andrew Scheer, right. the Tory leader, and Jagmeet Singh. So a men's debate, whereas uh, excluding on the only woman right. as leader. So that, you know, uh, I think for a feminist prime minister, I think it, it, it's not a good thing. What do you think of the debate strategy, John? I don't blame them for it. I think that, uh, you know, I, I, I quite like the idea of having one major debate in, in English and one in French. And this is the moment when the nation t tunes in and you get you know, a quarter of the voting population generally watch five minutes or so of it. You know, to me, that's, that makes it a real event and, and raises the stakes. Uh, I think when you've got too many sprinkled around, they become marginal events for... for and, and yet most other major democracies are kind of going the other way, right? There's, there's almost a debate a night in, you know, on CNN. There, <laughs> there are more and more debates now but in the they're, UK. They're devalued yeah. as a result, I think. Okay. Um, Let's talk about, as we, we, we touched on, as we 
enter the campaign, whenever that is, Thursday or, or maybe Sunday. Uh, could have happened right now it, while it we're could talking. Have yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> somebody check. Yeah. No. Um, the, the conservatives and liberals essentially enter the enter the campaign tied, Susan. And, and I guess for a lot of people wondering, given the the promise of the way the liberal government started and how high it was in the polls, why are these two parties tied going into an election campaign? Uh, well, you know, it, in part, it's uh, I, I guess it's it's government wears on people, you know, and the. Uh, mm -hmm the familiarity of it. I really do remember, I think all of us remember at this table in 2015, everybody was saying, oh, Justin Trudeau's already got, you know, a two right. majority, you know, that this is a first term. Um, I like, sometimes I like to think it's because Canadians are sporting people and we like uh, to give everybody a chance. I think it's a sign that, that uh, you know, they, there was promise unfulfilled. I think a lot of the heady feeling around 2015 is kind of dissipated from the Liberals. Some of that is their own fault. Some of it is just the casualty of govern governing. I think uh, Scheer has been a pretty good opposition leader. My concern, and it was also in the last campaign too, I'll just say my personal mm -hmm. hobby horse about this is, I like it better when we have a lot of choice. You know, I think I really don't want Canada to go down this road of polarization, you know, the, where it's an either-or choice on the ballot box too. So I don't mind seeing the NDP and the Greens and, and as many people in this race as, as possible so that it isn't a two-way polarized race. Um, I hope the election campaign is interesting in all kinds of ways, including a multiplicity of choices for people. What do you think, Trilby? I spent a day with uh, Mr. Trudeau uh, in uh, doing a sort of a tour, pre-organized tour in, in Quebec from Trois-Rivières to Saint-Hyacinthe to Sherbrooke uh, three weeks ago. And we did uh, a formal interview with him. And what I've noticed is that he is ready for that campaign. Um, he spoke without notes most of the time, and that's going to be the strategy for the Liberals have Mr. Trudeau unscripted as much as possible. There might be uh, an opening for some mistakes, but they are willing to take that risk because they feel that that's the best way to do it. We also had uh, uh, Mr. Scheer uh, for an interview at La Presse on Friday, and he seems to be also ready for that election campaign. He's been demanding one for a while, and you know he's getting ready, and his troops are ready in Quebec. So I think this might be the closest election we have seen in a while. And I wouldn't bet you know, who will co come out as a winner, but for now, I think the Liberals still come out with a little bit uh, chance of winning again in the mandate because of their support in Quebec and, and, and Ontario. That's, that's what the polls do identify yep. for us too, eh, John. It's a, a clear choice, I think, for Canadians based on what these two leaders are talking about, but also uh, a certain division in the country, right? I mean, the Conservative numbers are bolstered by the Prairies, and uh, the Liberal numbers are bolstered in Atlantic Canada and, yeah. and Quebec and so on. So, yep. what, what does that suggest for the campaign? Well, I wrote a book. You might yeah, I read. <laughs> I read a book. I, I read it. I read but, it. Um, but, but one of the theories that's kind of untested is, is that, um, that Trudeau has taken the country too far to the left. And that there's a, this country was, uh, there was a consensus post-war between progressive conservatives and small-c conservative liberals. And most governments have stayed within the parameters of those of that, maybe the Harper government strayed from it, but even the Harper government was pretty pragmatic and and bought a car company, for example. Mm -hmm. You know, our, obviously the, the the Liberal government bought a pipeline, so <laughs> they're not exempt from that either. But I think the, the relentless sense that that if they won on the left, they would win the country, because the the New Democrat vote collapsed last time, and right. it, 
may well collapse again. And therefore, if you, as long as you dominate that vote, then you win. And I think that that has, even for a lot of Liberal MPs I talked to, that there's a sense that uh, there's a huge swathe of voters in the middle because they feel, a lot of them feel as well that the sheer Conservatives are, are out with that consensus too. And there's an awful lot of people who feel that there's no home for them right now. And I think there's, so we saw the, the Angus Reid poll came out a week or so ago. Only 13% committed Liberal voters, 24% ten, trend, right. tending towards them. 25% committed Conservatives with another 15 or so ten, uh, trending towards them or tending towards them. That's a very volatile electorate and they could land anywhere. I mean, my <laughs> suspicion is that a lot of those disaffected Liberals end up choosing Trudeau as the least right. worst option. They get less less disaffected the closer we get to but, the voting but it, day. It's, I mean, if, if the Liberals do win a majority again, or even a strong minority, and turn around and say, this is a vindication of everything we've done, I find that hard to see. There's been a t complete enthusiasm gap in the electorate. Let's finish on this. Do you want to jump yeah, I was just going to say, based on uh, reading John's excellent book, um, I actually have been thinking a lot about what happened to blue Liberals and what happened mm. to red Tories on the other side. And this goes to the polarization fears. and. I think either leader, whoever wins, is going to have to worry about the country being governable because people are going to be, it's going to be an angry, I think, ugly election campaign and I worry it'll get so ugly and angry that whoever wins will find it hard to govern on the other side. Interesting. The, let's, let's finish up. We talked uh, blue and red. Let's talk green and orange uh, and finish the conversation. What's happening with the NDP and, and the Greens, there seems to be this little, this, this not much Skirmish, <laughs> yeah, growing sort of inside inside the the campaign before it even starts, and that's I think the Greens draw. Then you see, obviously, they're they're seeing some advantage they yeah. can they can take from the NDP, and the NDP uh, just seems to have a tough road ahead. Yeah, and they know the NDP as a party is a politically. Uh, injured party and they want to take advantage of that and you see it in the polls the Green Party has made some gains uh, in supports everywhere and you even see that in Quebec imagine that the Bloc Québécois is paying attention to what Elizabeth May is seeing and, and one of the key things she's, rebut, one uh, of the key things she's saying these days is if we're headed for she's saying that I, I spoke to her she's saying that you know we're headed for a minority parliament so Forget this strategic voting thing. Pick the choice you want. Yeah. If you want, it's going to be a split. Going to be a bunch of different parties in Parliament. And if you want to vote Green, this is the time to vote Green. And so that means that the Green might be a factor in every regions of the country. And if there is a party that we'll be watching for in this election, yes, the winner of the election, but also how uh, big the support of the Green will grow during this election campaign. What do you think, John? I think Elizabeth May's got a very uh, thin rope to walk on, and that. As long as she talks at headline levels about the, the, about climate change and the and the Green Party, she'll do okay and she'll keep this coalition together. But it's a very broad coalition. That's why the slogan's not left, not right, forward together. Right. Um, if she starts talking about what the Green Party in power would actually do, you start to get some of the the more right wing Greens going. Forget that. We'll go to the <laughs> Conservative Party. So it's kind of it's interesting it seems to me that Susan that you know for a long time she's been talking about climate change to a sometimes audience was that wasn't that excited about listening to it now it seems like the issues come to her everybody's talking about climate change and, and now sort of thinking oh Elizabeth May's been talking about this right. for a long time she's the one right? yeah it, it definitely is her time but I I think what uh, the other parties have been saying is let's see whether she has the organization to match it up and I know the other parties have been complaining 
uh, maybe rightfully or not, that this is vetting candidates, you know, is a huge thing now in the parties right. because of embarrassments in years past. And the NDP was telling us, we don't even have the resources to do the kind of vetting we need. Uh, I don't think Elizabeth May's campaign has done that kind of vetting. And I think, you know, the, the kind of stories we saw, I'm not saying that she's going to have a candidate who peed in a coffee mug, <laughs> but... <laughs> But uh, I, I think we, you know, there, there may be all kinds of surprises uh, on the green candidates. That was a big story in yeah. the last election yeah. campaign. Is, uh, all right, uh, so we wait, and we'll talk, talk again. <laughs> we'll talk again when we know. Yeah. Thank you all. Thank you. Well, the UK Parliament is being suspended and will stay that way for the next five weeks. It is the latest development in an ongoing scramble by British Prime Minister Boris Johnson to salvage his Brexit plan. John, Johnson has warned the UK must leave the European Union uh, by October 31st with or without a separation deal. But his political opponents in Parliament have blocked him by passing a law that prohibits Brexit without a divorce deal with the European Union. And they have so far foiled his plan to call an early election over this issue. For more on what it all means and what happens next, we've reached Catherine Barnard, a professor of EU and employment law at Cambridge University. Professor Barnard, good to see you again. Thanks for taking time to speak with me. Pleasure. Uh, why has Boris Johnson moved to suspend the UK Parliament for five weeks? What does that give him? Well, the official reason is that um, he wants to reset the clock he wants to um, set his own domestic agenda on health and education, and he needs to prorogue or suspend Parliament in order to be able to invite the Queen back uh, to launch his agenda. Most people think that actually part of that's the justification for the other part is that he didn't really want Parliament causing more trouble over Brexit and asking more questions over what he was doing over the divorce deal. It was a way of running the clock down to the 31st of October when, um, as he has said, it's do or die, we shall be leaving the EU. Okay, why is there such opposition to having the UK withdraw from the EU without an agreement on how that separation will work? What, what's the concern? The real concern is the impact on the economy and on jobs. Now, UK government has been devoting a huge amount of resources. We think a best part of 12,000 civil servants have been working on trying to mitigate the consequences of a no-deal Brexit. And they've been putting legislation in place to try and help uh, things on the 1st of November. But it's widely thought that despite the best endeavours of the UK, there's only so much the UK can do on its side of the border. And the reality is that the French government will be checking on goods coming into France. And all of this will cause significant uh, holdups at the border. And that will affect the supply of food and, crucially, the supply of medicines. And people are very worried about that. And they're also worried about loss of access to a number of the EU databases on uh, criminal, uh, criminal law matters. And so a lot of MPs are very worried about a no-deal Brexit. And that's why this very important bill, um, which became an act of parliament this evening, it got royal assent today. And this bill essentially says, unless Boris Johnson comes up with some sort of deal, the UK must ask for an extension to Article 50. So we stay in the EU for um, another few months until the end of January 2020. Okay, uh, let's uh, let's talk about th this extension uh, possibility because, um, as you say, Parliament's passed uh, that law. Uh, it's now uh, an act of Parliament that they're uh, 
you know, that prevents a no-deal uh, Brexit. Uh, Boris Johnson has famously said he would die in a ditch before asking the EU for an extension. So what are his options with this law now hanging over his head? Well, this is a million-dollar question. What can he do? Because he's adamant that he won't be asking for an extension. On the other hand, the law expressly mandates him personally as prime minister to do just that act. So what will happen? One possibility is he says, I'm not going to do it. That's what he's been talking about so far. I'm not going to do it. And therefore, he'll be taken to court. And it's likely the courts will uphold the order that he should um, comply with the legislation. And then he'll turn around and say, I had to uh, ask for an extension because Parliament and the courts made me do it. So that's one possibility. Mm. Another possibility is um, even if he asks for an extension, it takes two to tango and the EU have got to act unanimously to grant that extension. So he goes to one of his friends in, say, Hungary and says, could you block that uh, EU agreement? It only takes one state to block it and therefore we'll be leaving on the 31st of October with no deal. The other possibility and the rather odd one is for him to resign or even call a vote of no confidence in himself. And if he resigns, then that gives the opposition leader, Jeremy Corbyn, a chance to try and form a government. Now, then Jeremy Corbyn would be forced to ask for an extension. And then after that, it's likely to be an election. Wow. OK, so there's a lot of bouncing balls to follow here. What's uh, look into your crystal ball? How do you how do you think this gets resolved? It's a mugs game to try and make any predictions at all. Who would have thought we would have been where we are at the moment? Who would have thought that Parliament would be prorogued, suspended for five weeks? It's the longest period of prorogation or suspension for a very, very long time, just at a time when the UK is going through its biggest crisis since the war. Uh, who would have thought that um, there would be an act of parliament telling the executive to do something and the executive saying, no, we're not going to do it. Right. I think what's likely to happen is there probably will be an extension of some sort. There'll be an election soon afterwards. Question is, will the election produce a decisive victor or, as most people think, it'll be a hung parliament? And we'll be back in just this situation again in January. You and I might be talking again then. All right. Uh, Catherine Bernard, always good to get your perspective. Thanks for your time tonight. Appreciate it. The Assembly of First Nations today released its priorities for the upcoming federal election. National Chief Perry Bellegarde was in Ottawa to unveil Honoring Promises 2019, the Assembly's list of top issues it wants uh, to see addressed by the federal political parties. At the top of the list, climate change and affirming First Nations laws and rights. Chief Bellegarde wouldn't endorse one party over another, but he did emphasize some of the progress made in policies and legislation in the past four years. Here is Perry Bellegarde speaking with reporters today. Before the uh, federal election back in 2015, our Assembly of First Nations released Closing the Gap, federal election priorities for First Nations in Canada, a plan to start closing the gap, the unacceptable gap in the quality of life between First Nations in Canada a gap that still impacts every single Canadian. Our goal was to make, make sure that every candidate understands First Nations priorities. Our goal was to shape the dialogue around the First Nations agenda and Canada's agenda throughout the election and through the next four years. Looking back in the last four years, I believe we had some significant progress and impact. 
We saw the government enshrine in law the need to protect First Nations languages and children. We are seeing support for new approaches to education designed and driven by First Nations. We are seeing work being done on a new fiscal relationship between First Nations and the federal government based on predictability and sustainability. There is much work to do, but there is movement and momentum. Today, I'm releasing Honoring Promises, 2019 Federal Election Priorities for First Nations in Canada. Honoring Promises. I believe that Honoring Promises sets out the next steps that we need to take as First Nations, as governments, and as a country. We want all Canadians, regardless of their political affiliation, to understand that First Nations priorities are really Canada's priorities. And so we must start with a commitment, first of all, to Mother Earth, to our natural world, and a promise to the next seven generations. Climate change, climate destruction is the number one issue facing all of us. Look at the flooding in First Nations along the Great Lakes, right here in Ottawa. Look at the fires in Brazil, and we sometimes call them the lungs of the earth. Look at the hurricanes. Look at what happened on the East Coast with Hurricane Dorian. Things are changing, no question, throughout the world. But it's not time for despair. It's time to plan wisely for the future. And it's time we act immediately, because it's the only planet we all have. First Nations must be first responders in this global emergency. We set out a number of clear commitments. It's time for action, action that incorporates Indigenous knowledge. We have to develop a vision of environmental stewardship that is global and holistic, that takes us beyond existing targets and timelines towards a sustainable future for our children, grandchildren, and beyond. We must promise to build a new economy, an economy for the future of our planet. We have to promise to care for the lands that feed us and renew our original promise to one another to mutually share and benefit from the lands and resources. This means living in keeping with what we've been taught and our promise to one another to share and work together as partners based on mutual recognition and mutual respect. United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples sets out the minimum standards necessary for the dignity, survival, and well-being of Indigenous peoples throughout the world. It says that all impacted parties need to agree on any proposed project or development before it begins. And if it proceeds, it does so in a way that respects our rights and our traditional territories. And that's a good thing. That's called being good neighbours. Upholding that standard would prevent the conflicts in court cases we're seeing today. It would ensure everyone is treated fairly, and it would lead to greater economic prosperity for everyone. Canada must lead in upholding the United Nations Declaration. So we expect the next government to implement the UN Declaration through legislation that is at least as strong as Bill C-262, which died in the Senate. This is about upholding our rights, rights that are too often recognized but not respected. And here I just want to say that we're all treaty people and we have a treaty relationship with the Crown. We have a treaty with the Crown. I don't have a treaty with the Conservatives. 
or the Liberals or the NDP or the Greens. We have a treaty relationship with the Crown. And we have to see that being honored and implemented according to the spirit and intent. We also say that this is about justice for First Nations people. We want sweeping reforms to Canada's legal system so it truly becomes a just system and not just a court of laws. Our people are too often denied justice. I think of Colton Bushy. I think of John Stiers. We need sweeping changes to ensure justice and legal systems address racism and discrimination. It is simply unbelievable that Indigenous people represent about 30% of all adults in custody, while representing about 4% of the people in Canada. So our plans call for a promise to restorative justice. Even steps like designating First Nations policing as an essential service. Ensuring more First Nations people are appointed to all levels of the court including the Supreme Court of Canada. And we are calling for the next government to acknowledge and affirm that First Nations laws as equal to common law and civil law. We must promise to the next generation that we are committed to health, education, and attachment to their families, traditions, and nations. First Nations youth need equal opportunity to excel in math and science, history, the arts, and skills and trades. And they must be inspired to have the opportunity to speak their languages, live their cultures, and attend their ceremonies. So as we implement the new law protecting indigenous languages, we must do it right. Honoring promises is about building a stronger country through healthy and educated First Nations citizens living in communities where every one of our citizens, men, women, two-spirited, transgender, everyone feels safe. A country where the calls to justice of the final report of the National Inquiry into missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls and calls to action of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission are all fully implemented. It's our time to commit to action to save our planet and ourselves, to commit to ensure all children are equipped to build a prosperous future, and to commit to a promise that health, education, <clears throat> the economy and justice systems will work for everyone. The plan we call Honoring Promises points the way to real transformative change, and we say the time to act is now. That's my introductory comments. Take questions. Right. So uh, we have uh, about 20 minutes or so, so one question, one follow-up, and I'll try to get through everybody who's on the list. Uh, Julie Van Dusen, CBC. Uh, Chief Belgard, you say there have been concrete action and investments. Um, does this government get another chance? Does it deserve another four years? Or would another party do a better job? Well, when I say that, I think back last four years in 2015 from closing the gap. Is the gap closed yet? The answer is no. Has there been movement? The answer is yes. We have to maintain momentum. And what I talk about when I say there has been movement, I think back to 21.4 billion over seven fiscal years. That's four Kelowna Accords. So that is unprecedented. But we have to get it out to have impact for education and housing and healthcare and water and infrastructure in the First Nations communities. I think about the Language Implementation Act that's been done, C91. I think about C92. Um, I think about the 1.4 billion that has been forgiven in loans. You know, so there has been movement, um, commitment to the UN Declaration. You know, for a new piece of legislation to implement it. Uh, but there's more work to do. Progress doesn't mean parity. And I don't believe the gap is going to be closed in four years or eight years. And so through this, we outlined what can happen in two years, what can happen in four years. Uh, 
and then once that gap closes, I've always said it's not only good for First Nations people, it's good for Canada. The socioeconomic economic gap closes, the high social costs that are there are lessened and lowered. And I think the, the stat that I keep talking about to people is that when young First Nations men are, are educated and trained and working, you can add over $27 billion in GDP to Canada's overall growth. So we've got some work to do. But are you endorsing a party? Not endorsing any party. I'm asking First Nations people to get out to vote. Look what's happened in the last four years. Look at all the party platforms. Who is making strong statements when it comes to rights and title and jurisdiction? Who are making strong statements regarding the UN Declaration? Who are making strong statements when it comes to restorative justice? Uh, and make an informed decision. I want to see the 61.5% number of first eligible First Nations voters go up. I think we can have an impact, no question. Uh, my job as National Chief is to influence all party platforms, and that's what we're doing by issuing this document. Okay. Um, I just wanted to ask about Jody Wilson-Raybould. Is it going to have an impact? It may have an impact as well. Everybody's watching that riding, particular riding. Um, you know, that's one out of 338. Again, it's, uh, I, I want to see First Nations people in all political parties, you know, we have First Nations people in the Liberal Party. We have First Nations people that are independent. We have First Nations people in the NDP and the Greens. You know, uh, We have to get our people around all decision-making tables. We have to get our people around all internal decision-making party platforms. Um, we have to get our, our people around decision-making tables in the private sector and the public sector. And so to me, it's, it's really good that we have more and more First Nations men and women looking at it. Um, will it have an impact? We'll see. Like, um, I just want to make sure that our issues resonate in all party platforms. And again, that whoever gets in, they start focusing on this. Because you're going to get, and, and once these issues are dealt with, you build a better country. And that's really what it's all about. Christy Kirkup. Um, good morning. Um, just wanted to ask you, in the last federal election, you were asked a question by a reporter, which was, are you going to vote? And you said <laughs> you were going to vote for the first time in the 2015 election. Um, why hadn't you voted up until then, and are you going to vote in this election? Well, that was a really a, a good question that caught me off guard last time, Christine, in 2015. And because um, I was unrolling this great platform, you know, and then the question from the reporter was, are you going to vote? And I said, um, no, I haven't ever voted. And um, why haven't I never voted? But I have voted now. And historically, as First Nations people, we have a treaty relationship with the Crown. And as I said earlier, I don't have a treaty with any political party. But it's the Crown, and it's the honor of the Crown. And the Crown has to live up to and abide by and implement these treaties according to the spirit and intent. So there's an ongoing obligation. And so I was taught as a young boy, like, yeah, we don't need to vote because we have a treaty. So that's one reason. And the other one was because it's not our government. We said that. And so, okay, we have our own government. So those two reasons, so growing up, I was always taught that from old people, elders. And uh, so that's why I never voted. But in 2015, I was asked the question, well, well, actually, how do you expect First Nations people to vote if you don't vote? And so I had to go home and talk to the elders and through ceremony and, and this concept of dual citizenship to embrace that concept because First Nations weren't granted the right to vote or given the right until 1960-61. So we were allowed to participate and vote. And so harnessing that political power now is very important. 
And uh, getting that vote out is very important. And embracing that concept of dual citizenship is very important. So yes, I'm going to vote again. And I've embraced that concept again. I voted. I don't feel any less Cree. I still speak Cree and go to our ceremonies. And I'm still a member of Little Black Bears First Nations Band. And that's not going to change. But I'm also a Canadian citizen with my fundamental right to vote. And I'm going to exercise it. And I'm going to encourage more people to vote because now we have impact. If you want to be a member of Parliament, you better listen to First Nations issues and concerns and priorities because we have an impact. We're voting now. And to that end, with the data that is available from Elections Canada, because we can only get a window into what, um, you know, what happened on reserve, um, do you think that, much like in 2015, that First Nations are going to be uh, more politically engaged than they have been in the past, and so why? That's my hope, you know, that we become more politically engaged. We have to use all the <clears throat> tools in our toolbox, or use all the arrows in our quiver to bring about policy and legislative change. And voting is one of them. Let's use it. Let's use that. And so uh, getting more ballot boxes out on the reserves, so it's easier access to, to the voting, to the ballot boxes, that's something. Um, getting um, Elections Canada, that, that brochure, the what do you call that? <laughs> Their elections guide translated into 14 First Nations languages. Yeah, setting up call centers, you know, to encourage people to get out, you know, to, to make sure they make an informed choice. So, uh, again, I, I would hope and uh, want to see that 61.5% go up. And uh, uh, the numbers that we looked at, we uh, influenced over 50 ridings. Uh, and, and we flipped 21, 21, 22 ridings. So, uh, again, if you want to be a member of Parliament, you want to be Prime Minister of Canada, focus on First Nations issues and priorities. They're not only good for our people, they're good for Canada as a country. Todd, APTM. Uh, National Chief, um, I know you've said in the past, you just said it today, that you don't endorse any particular party. Mm -hmm. But how much of a step back would a Conservative majority be, for example, um, this is the party, the Conservative Senators anyways, that killed Bill C-262. Uh, I know the critic for Indigenous Affairs has told me that uh, Conservatives, if they get in, will uh, enforce the First Nations Transparency Act. So would that not be a step back? Well, I've got a good relationship with all the leaders. You know, like Andrew Shear is uh, from my back. He's like from Saskatchewan, not the Saskatchewan boy. He's from the Regina Capel, my home area. He's got 12 reserves in his riding. Um, some of their policies aren't as progressive as they can be. Um, it's my job to help him get to where he should be. You know, it's my job to help influence all policy and legislation that they have within the Conservative Party of Canada, as I do with Justin Trudeau and the Liberals, as I do with Elizabeth May and the Greens. Um, so uh, it's just like influencing internal policy and legislative frameworks. That's the ongoing job of the Assembly of First Nations and National Chief. So um, Andrew Shear, like you say, is from back home. We have to have a relationship with him. And uh, I'm going to keep encouraging that relationship because they, they could be the next, he could be the next Prime Minister of Canada. So I've got to have a relationship with everybody because uh, these issues aren't going away. The gap's still going to be there. And so if we can convince people uh, about the importance of uh, treaty rights and inherent rights, Aboriginal rights and title, and the need to invest, invest in housing and education, water, and basic necessities of life, it's a good thing. And, uh, um, you know, uh, that's where i got to keep pushing. Uh, how much of an election issue would it be for First Nations uh, if uh, the federal government appeals last week's order by the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal to pay out $40,000 to... Uh, those caught up in the child welfare. Uh, if they appeal that and they have to do it before October 7th, would that be an election issue? 
Well, uh, I would say it would be an election issue if anybody appeals it. I think it would be crazy for anybody to appeal this. It's about children's fundamental human rights. And uh, it's the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal, Canada's own tribunal, has told Canada you can't continue to fundamentally breach fundamental human rights. And this is about children. So uh, I, I would hope that there is no appeal of the decision. Uh, you can't put a price tag on a ruined childhood. Uh, you can't. And, and so I would hope that it's not appealed. And uh, we move on to getting... Uh, healthy children, you know, with with hope for the future that every other child in Canada has, that they can be all that they can be. More force. Thank you. Um, I'm wondering, the Liberal government made a number of very big promises to Indigenous peoples uh, coming into the last election, and I'm wondering which of those commitments do you think um, have not materialized in the way that you hoped they would by now? Well, the big one would be a law regarding the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. That's a big one. And, uh, but I think a lot of the parties have already committed that if they get elected, they will implement a law. It was a private member's bill that didn't see the light of day. It got, it got killed in the Senate. So that's a big piece. Um, I would say as well, uh, um, there has been movement on language. So that bill's done. Child Welfare, C92, is done. Um, we have to get four very key policies updated and in line with Section 35 of the Constitution and the UN Declaration. Four very key policies that we have to really get our heads around. And that's the, the comprehensive claims policy, the specific claims policy, the additions to reserve policy, and the inherent right to self-government. Because currently, they're based on termination of rights and title and not recognition of rights and title. So they need to be fixed. And so we need to be very clearly a clear process. And uh, we did get a process uh, announced with Minister Carolyn Bennett uh, a few months back, but we have a lot of work. That, it's not done yet. So we have to maintain and continue that momentum going forward in that regard. Uh, the other one is the boil water advisories have gone down from over 130 to, to about maybe 57, 58, but still not done. So fundamental human right to, to potable water is a huge issue. And uh, it's moving the right direction, but it's not completed yet. So uh, between the UN declaration, between the four policies that need to be fixed, uh, between uh, ending the water advisories, um, there's still, still work to do. I think there was a real sense of optimism when this government was elected uh, among Indigenous peoples that this would be the beginning of a new relationship uh, between the federal government and Indigenous peoples. And I'm wondering, do you think that sense of optimism still exists in the way that it did in 2015? Or, or how do you think that's changed? I'm going to say it still exists in the sense of it's all about accessibility. Having accessibility to the key decision makers, which is cabinet. So it's prime minister and cabinet ministers. So all I can go by is what happened in the last four years. So before, how many times had the prime minister ever come to an AFN chief's assembly? A sitting prime minister. The answer is never. A sitting prime minister. This prime minister has come... What, three times? How often have ministers of the crown come to chief's assemblies? Not as often. Like, we've had ministers come, and they stay to take questions. So that's unprecedented in, in my experience. So it's all about having accessibility. It, because if you don't have access 
to the key policy and legislative decision makers, you are not going to bring about change. So you need to have access. So access has been there. So in that regard, it's a step forward. It's, it's still lots of work to do because the gap still exists. And uh, so we, we have to maintain the momentum going forward about accessibility. Marie Vestel? Um, you, you've mentioned a lot of things that have gone forward that are not quite there yet. The gap mm -hmm. isn't closed yet, but you, you keep mentioning these things that, that, that have come some way. Um, and you see that in this election, you, you want Indigenous peoples to look at platforms and make sure that Indigenous issues are taken into account in every platform. Mm -hmm. Are you of the opinion, though, that it is taken into account in the same way in every platform? I'm, ha I'm having a hard time thinking that, listening to you. When you say this and this has changed before 2015, this and this never happened, do you really believe that all the platforms give the same importance to Indigenous issues right now? Well, <clears throat> again, you'd have to see that they're finalized versions of all their platforms and then do the assessment. And again, uh, um, compare them to what's being said and, and getting uh, commitments in writing before the election on October 21. And then after the election is there, whoever gets elected is to hold our, their feet to the fire. That you made a commitment that you would implement the 231 calls to justice and make sure the families are included in developing the national action plan. We're get, we have to hold our feet to the fire. Who's saying strong statements on that? Are the Liberals, NDP, Greens, Conservatives? Who's making strong statements on the UN Declaration? That if they get elected, they will enact a piece of legislation. You know who's making those strong commitments. You, you, you won't take position today, but you already know that one of the parties doesn't have the same commitments in terms of bringing back the Transparency Act, like my mm -hmm. colleague said, in terms of the UN Declaration and Mr. Saganash's bill. So I'm having a hard time reconciling you saying we're open to every party, we'll look at the platform, yet you yourself are recognizing that one party doesn't have the same commitments. Well, make them, you just made an informed choice. You've answered your own question. And then we can move on from there. But if the, it, I'm being very, very diplomatic, as National Chief should be, that I've got to work with whoever gets elected and bring about policy and legislative change. And uh, that's my role, that's my job. Um, I would hope and, 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 and push that they will see the, the importance of the UN Declaration you know, and eventually adopt it if they get elected. That's the job of any national leader, is to bring about policy and legislative change. And um, some are more robust in their, in their positions right now and more clear, and others aren't. Doesn't mean they can't change. So you just got to keep pushing them to get to the right space. We've got about five minutes, and I've got eight people okay. still to go. Nine. Um, so <laughs> I'm going to move on. So if we can keep it keep it going here quickly, guys. Uh, Dylan Robertson. National uh, Chief, I was wondering why there isn't an urban indigenous um, thing here, like a pledge for a strategy or something. We saw that UPIP was frozen because there was an overwhelming demand on programming grants. We know that there's demands for the national housing strategy to deal with homelessness of urban indigenous mm. people. Why is that not in this platform? It's covered, I would say, when you talk about uh, the fiscal relationship with the Crown. And uh, so there is work going on for predictability and sustainability of, of funding in place for First Nations governments. And the Corbier decision is, get your head familiar with the Corbier decision. It's a very key decision. 
basically said that First Nations citizens have the right to vote for their chief and council regardless where they live. So the chief and council is at first order. And because of that, there's going to be the expectation that you have the fundamental, fundamental right to vote. There's going to be the expectation of portability of services and programs and rights. And so one of the elements of a new fiscal relationship with the Crown is total membership, total citizenship on and off the reserve, on and off your territories. Uh, other elements are that this relationship on, on fiscal has to keep up with inflation, consumer price indexing, must be based on needs, should be treaty-based funding, should also look at a percentage of GDP, the lands and resources that Indigenous peoples are sharing with everybody else in Canada. So all those are elements of this new fiscal. So that component about looking after your citizens becomes under that framework. Um, under that piece. As a follow-up, if we could weigh in you know, on how the Assembly of Manitoba Chiefs has handled the allegations about Grand Chief Dumas this past summer. There's been um, criticism about a lack of accountability, about these inappropriate texts, a lack of proof that the Chief's cell phone was hacked. I know that the AFN is dealing with it, its own issues regarding one of the regional chiefs. I'm just <laughs> curious what you make of the AMC when they froze out the media at their assembly this year. That's their call. That's the Assembly Manitoba Chief's call. As AFN, now, I'm not going to make a comment on that. You can refer your question to the AMC territory. Um, you know, um, at AFN, from my, from my perspective, we try to be transparent, open, and accountable. Um, you mentioned the, uh, the, the one regional chief that uh, we have suspended with PAVE pending the ongoing investigation, and that's where that rests. Olivia Stefanovic? So in this document, you say you want to work with the new government and have a say in how revenues from greenhouse gas pricing, carbon pricing, is spent. And Andrew Scheer has already said if he forms government, he's going to scrap that. So I'm wondering what kind of conversations you've had with the Conservatives about this and how they've responded. Well, our, um, my senior team and their, their policy writers are always constantly backing forth about trying to influence, um, you know, is it a price on pollution? So the carbon tax, you know, that's always the debate. You know, it's becoming an election ballot box issue. I think globally, I think we have to make a transition to, to cleaner energy. Um, uh, again, uh, the number one issue is climate change, climate destruction. And how do you battle that? And what we're just talking about is one of the strategies. That's just one. And I think the sooner that all parties get their head around that and have clear visions and strategies to deal with it, the better. And sometimes people aren't always there. So it's, it takes more dialogue to get people to that space where it's, yeah, that makes sense. It's almost like if you can draw on all the good ideas and all the policy platforms on all the main parties and bring them into one, that might be the best approach sometimes. You know, a little bit of this, a little bit of that. Because on this one, globally, um, and we were there in 2015 in Paris, and we pushed hard for First Nations Indigenous people involvement at a, at a very senior level. Um, this is a world crisis, and we're not moving fast enough off our dependency on fossil fuels. And we have to do all we can. And I would encourage every party leader, every Canadian citizen to get that. And I think of some th three shining examples in First Nations territory uh, of where they're off. Like I think of uh, Souk First Nation, Chief Planis on solar, completely on solar. I think of Henvi Inlet. You know, Chief McQuabby and in, in, in wind power. I think of the microgrid that's happening up in Gull Bay with Chief King. They're safe, they're off. They're they're not utilizing diesel anymore. Like there's things that can happen, and I think we just got to do it quicker. And people have to see the the urgency on that. As a liberal indicated that 
they would be willing to allow First Nations to get some of that revenue from carbon pricing? No, it makes, uh, again, when you start talking about revenue sharing schemes, it's, there's a whole range. It's a bigger, it's a bigger dialogue discussion rather than just one piece. Um, you have the excise tax on cannabis. You have revenue sharing. You have resource revenue sharing. It's got to be talked about in a bigger context. You can't just say one piece. It's got to be in a bigger fiscal framework. Sorry, guys, we got time for one more. So um, uh, for those who aren't who didn't get a question, I'm sorry. But last one, Tom Korski. On that last uh, point, that's a little vague, Mr. Bellegarde. Your, your document mm -hmm. is quite clear that you want input on revenues generated from the carbon tax. But Cabinet says there are no revenues. It's revenue neutral. The tax uh, proceeds are returned directly to the tax filer or small business by application. So what revenue sharing are you referring to? Well, in the bigger context, uh, not only on the carbon tax, there's lots of different taxation regimes that happen. Um, and I mentioned cannabis excise tax, which we've been excluded, um, the, the revenues from different royalties. It's just the whole fiscal framework dialogue has to take place. And so when it comes to that one particular one, um, I think there's a bigger context where it has to be looked at in terms of a new fiscal relationship with the Crown. And, and all revenues, all taxes have to be looked at and put on the table so that there's sustainable, predictable funding in place for First Nations governments. That's what we're trying to refer to in that document on the National Inquiry on Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls, which is getting through access to information, the accounts, some $92 million was spent by that commission. Uh, the accounts indicate there was money spent there that had no obvious relation to the final report, the purpose, or the outcome. It was a lot of money. Do you have any comment on the money that was spent by that commission? I don't have any comment on the, on the money that was spent, other than that it was an important work. Um, the important work of the, uh, the commission is uh, uh, vital to ending violence against women and girls. And so uh, the main call now is the development of a national action plan. And there are 231 calls to justice. Um, overall, any time, can anything be done more, more efficiently? You always look at ways to do that. There's no question. But the overall issue is that their report is very important. And the strategies and the programs and their recommendations or their calls to justice should be acted on and taken very seriously by all levels of government. Well, that's, okay. it. that's all the time we have. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much. Have a great week. That's all for another edition of Primetime Politics on CPAC, the cable public affairs channel. I'm Peter Van Dusen. Thanks for watching.